Welcome to Interruptions Podcast, where we have heartfelt and sacred discussions about our culture, faith traditions, and community. We invite guests who are open and willing to share their journey and disrupt the silence on their personal and professional interruptions that have impacted their lives as it relates to our mental health. Kathy and I are passionate about every episode and committed to providing actionable advice that you can apply today to reinvent yourself on your life journey and encourage you to develop a path toward healing. So, I guess that's on me. Hello, everyone. My name is Jennifer Wells Jackson, and today I have the honor of reading portion a portion of the book, Interruptions, uh, for you. So before I start reading, I'm trying really super hard not to laugh at things that are really, <laughs> really funny to me. And I think about my experience with um, Odell and why it's so dagnabbit funny to me. So I'm going to begin. Being teased as a stutterer was torturous. My family would say, you can tell when Dad is lying because she stutters. Shoot, I stammered even when I wasn't lying. But lying intensified the stammering. One day, I will enjoy telling Sarah and Charlene that they were drinking toilet water <laughs> with my cookies. If they read this book, the secret's out of the bag. I was about 10 years old when Mama Doe purchased a new stereo console. It looked like a wooden dining cabinet and the entire lid lifted up and revealed the record player and knobs to adjust the volume and bass. In the corner of the player you could store 45 RPM records and the yellow disc adapter placed in the center hole of middle of the recording before lo loading it on the player. The stereo console was about six feet long and sat in the living room. A room never entered without permission. With playing music, with music playing, excuse me, the tea set was put away to make room while Charlene taught us new dances. Charlene and Sarah pretended to be either the Jackson Five or Diana Ross and the Supremes. They would stand in open space between our beds in the middle of the room, singing and practicing new dance steps because I stuttered, <laughs> they would not allow me to join their group. My assignment would, was to turn up the music to change the records for the next routine. Every weekend, I asked to join the group. Charlene replied, no, you can't sing because you stutter. I dreaded just sitting on my bed or changing the records while watching Sarah and Charlene's show. 
Trying to intervene on my behalf, Mama Doe came into the room one day and asked Sarah and Charlene if she could find a song to sing. Would you let her be in the group? Charlene chuckled and said, <laughs> sure. It was clear she did not believe that was possible. Then one day turned out to be different. As usual, I came home from school planning to go into the bedroom to change my clothes before the singing duo began their performance <coughs> with me as their lone audience member. As I walked into the apartment carrying my school bag, Mama Doe said, I put something on the bed for you. It was a 45 record. Picking it up, I, I read the label and the name of the artist, neither sounding familiar or even interesting. Who is this man, I wondered. What is this song? When I asked permission to play the record on the stereo, Mama Doe approved and smiled. I walked into the living room, opened the lid on the stereo, and placed the plastic disc in the center of the record. I turned on the stereo and put the needle on the record as it spun on the turntable and the music played. I sat next to the stereo so I could hear the song. It started with a drum solo <coughs> and did not have much of a dance beat. However, something compelled me to listen to the entire song. Then it happened. Magic echoed from the speakers. The artist was Elton John, and the song was Benny and the Jets. I could hear him. I could hear him singing. Benny and the Jets. I was so excited. He picked up the needle and of the record player and played it again and again and again. And what were Benny and the Jets? I listened to the song for two hours, unable to sing the words, but I knew the hook. <laughs> Benny and the Jets! I was smiling. The night promised to be different with the new record. <laughs> Not more sitting on the bed watching the them perform. You should have seen their faces when I played the record. I reminded them they promised Mama Doe. Nonetheless, Charlene made me stand in the corner because I only had a small part. To this day, Sarah is the only black person I know who can sing the correct lyrics to Benny and the Jets. <laughs> to this day, when the song plays on the radio, the three of us laugh, and Sarah still points to me <laughs> so I can sing the hook.
The recording changed my life, becoming my theme song, my mantra. It didn't stop from me. It did not stop me stop from stuttering. But singing the hook was wonderful. The song gave me goosebumps, and I would sing the hook and giggle. I began looking for more songs like it. I felt as if Elton John knew me, and I was not alone. What magic. So, I have chuckled, thank you. I have chuckled my behind off when Odell told me the story. I felt like I might have been a little disrespectful because I laughed so hard to the point I had tears coming from my face, um, down my face, and just thinking, Benny in the jazz. And I chuckle, 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 chuckle. But it is one of her experiences. Interruption. Amazing. Thank you for giving me this time. Sorry. Hello, everybody. Hello. Uh, my name is Abigail Chan. I am. at the David Geffen School of Drama, which was formerly known as the Yale School of Drama, um, along with my classmate, Malachi Beasley, who will be coming up soon. Um, I started reading this book yesterday, and Odell, it's really nice to get a, a little glimpse into your life. <laughs> like, it's, it's really nice. I know that we, we worked on interruptions together, um, uh, the play, but to, to hear the book version is, is like, it's transformational. It's just kind of, it's like a glimpse into, like a, I feel like a little fly on the wall through this book. Um, so I'll be reading an excerpt from page 42 to 40, uh, 41 to 42. Nana came into the room during the call and overheard the conversation. When the call ended, she responded, I am sorry you found out like this but your mother asked us not to tell you. Sitting on the edge of Nana's bed, I was confused. My mind began racing back to my mother and daughter conversations and her stern admonitions. Eat your vegetables, sit up straight, and never live with a man. It now made sense. Nana reminded me of the love and sacrifices mothers make for their children. It's something that you will never understand until you become a mother. Your mother loved you and your birth changed her life, Nana explained. Everything was about you having the best she could offer. Do not judge her. She loved you. Hurry up and finish school and make her proud. When I returned to Howard the next day, I marched into my dean's office and changed my major from nutrition and dietetics to food and nutrition. I met all the science requirements for this new major 
did not have to take organic chemistry, which is a really hard class, y'all. Just that was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I should know. <laughs> and now could concentrate on culinary and management courses. My mother was gone, and remaining in that major was a huge burden to carry. Once the dean approved the switch, I was assigned a new advisor, and an enormous weight was lifted off my shoulders. No more organic chemistry classes in Death Valley. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Hello, um, my name is Malachi Beasley. As you heard, I'm a third year at uh, the Yale School of Drama, now known as David Giffen School of Drama. And I had the privilege of working on Interruptions to Play with uh, Odell, and it was a blessing. And I learned so much and was thankful to be able to experience through her eyes with her text. And as I was reading her book, and even just hearing that insert, um, I just thought, wow, she's an artist, you know? Like, she started with Benny and the Jets, and one thing that an artist can do is make you relate to the information that they're providing. But the one thing you have to do as an artist is be able to listen. And I think she does a wonderful job at listening to what the world is providing her. Um, and I'll read an, I'm gonna read an insert. Uh, about about that very that very moment that she decided to let it in and let it go through rather than hold it in, and I think that that transparency is something that uh, I aspire to and we all aspire to. So here we go. The following day, I found myself sitting underneath my tree again when a text from my neighbor arrived, reminding me about a fundraiser event for a new mayoral con candidate. I decided to attend, but wanted to arrive late. While I was mingling with people, I recognized a friend I had not seen in years. I didn't know that he lived in New Haven. Jonathan Berryman was still an incredible musician and teacher in New Haven. <laughs> he and I were standing with a group of uh, people when someone asked me what I did for a living. This time, I had a better response. I'm reinventing myself. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the people smiled and laughed. I changed the topic to avoid any further questions before I left the event. Berryman cornered me and wanted to know more about my response. He wanted me to explain what I meant by reinventing myself. Because we were Facebook friends, he knew about my son. I didn't have to provide all the details. But he wanted details of my healing. Before the conversation ended, Berryman suggested I share my story. People need to hear your story. You could help someone else on their journey. I was adamant about not having the aptitude for writing a play or a book. But you know people who can, he replied. Before we left the event, Berryman had convinced me to text a mutual acquaintance to explore ways to share my story. In the next month, Berryman, Alta, and Rev Anderson were sitting at a table at a kitchen table strategizing how to tell my story in a stage production and in a book form. The four of us met for months afterwards, defining roles, partnerships, and resources. One of my strengths was that I was persistent and eager to learn. They coached me through the process of being a playwright, and I began networking and applying for grant funding. 
God sent me other coaches and mentors who were experts in their fields of PTSD and mental health to volunteer their time. In the summer, Tim Rayner, now Dr. Rayner, and the executive director of the School of Professional Studies at the University of Bridgeport, called and offered me an adjunct contract for the summer. The title course was A Pursuit of Happiness. I would be teaching from a book entitled Authentic Happiness by Martin E.P. Silgman, PhD. My challenge was to adapt my teaching style to the new topics and concepts and to deliver the, the curriculum flawlessly. I still had difficulty with my reading and writing skills. To compensate, I ordered an audiobook and highlighted the key points in, the hard, in hard copy. The makeup of the class was 22 adult students from various backgrounds. Some had been in prison, others were veterans, working mothers and fathers, survivors from the Haiti earthquake, and wealthy students from Saudi Arabia who had never worked a day in their lives. All had experienced some level of trauma in their lives. On the first day, I explained the course outline and assignments. One student kept questioning me about the final project, which was blank on the outline because I had not decided how to end the course. During my explanation, I told the student that I wanted to teach them how to deal with the interruptions in their lives. We would utilize the information in the book and through discussion with each other to discover that we were to discover that there was lessons learned from their childhood, friendships, family, relationships, faith, and education to be resilient and to rebound after a traumatic interruption. While teaching the course, I realized God was teaching me the same lesson. Thank you. Hello, everyone. So glad to make your acquaintance and being your company and absolutely I am so thrilled to do this for my dear friend Coop. <laughs> so I'm going to start out with some questions to kind of set the stage of who you are. Okay. Okay. Where were you born? Born in Harlem, New York, 1962. Your mom was? Mary, um, my parents lived in Harlem. Your dad was? Uh, Duke B. Montgomery and was from Savannah, Georgia. And at the time that I was born, my dad was a sky captain for TWA and my mother was in culinary. She was a chef. Do you have any siblings and are you the baby? Ah. At the time, <laughs> I was my mother's first child. She had me at 41, and at the time she didn't, I read later, I learned later that she didn't want any children. So I was born at the late age of, her late age of 41, and my father, which I did not know at the time, had other children. You spent your childhood between Boston and New York City. Yes. And in the book, it seems that Dorchester holds special memories, but so does New York City. And you did a lot of international travel as well. Yes. But what was the thing you can talk about for the both of them? Like, I know Dorchester <laughs> had one family, and New York was 
something different. New York was designer clothes and eating at the finest restaurants, and Dorchester was school and your cousins and Mama Doe and Nana. Yes. So how did you live in that world? Oh, it was interesting. <laughs> um, my, again, my parents were in Harlem, and I was, she, I was 41 when my mother was born, and she didn't want to raise any children. So my grandmother suggested who, I'll take her. And I moved to Boston at three days old, left the hospital, not trying to tell you everything in the book, left the hospital at three days old and went to Boston to be raised with my biological cousin, Mama Doe, who I call Mama Doe as my mother. And she had children. And my grandmother who lived there, who I'm named after. And my parents were always in my life. So I grew up in Dorchester, urban life. And when I would go to New York to visit my parents, um, I was midtown Manhattan, fine dining, very cultured. My, because my dad worked for TWA, you could travel, families could travel, and my mother took advantage of it. So there's one piece in the book, not to give away too much, and you're going to hear me say that a lot. <laughs> um, there's a gentleman, a young man that likes you. And he's on the porch, and you go all the talking, and you said, well, I can contact you when I get back from Paris. And he looks at you and says, somebody from Four Corners in Dorchester going to Paris? Right. I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, I never forget that summer. Uh, he was a popular and well-known basketball player and wanted my number and wanted to talk to me. And I'm like, I can't, I'm leaving, I'm going to Paris. And he was like, just tell me you want to give me your number. You know? Just, you ain't got to lie. You know, what, 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 what black girl from, from Four Corners goes to Paris? And I'm like, I'm leaving. And he got on his bike and was like, you know what, just find me when you get back. And yes. <laughs> so we already heard about the challenge you had as a stutterer. Yes. As a child. Yes. Talk to me about what that did for your confidence. Zero confidence. Um, low self-esteem. I stuttered my entire life. My family would tease me. They would hit me on the back of my back to get the words out, to spit them out, or they wouldn't ask me any questions at all. Um, and they would just say, we know what you're thinking. And I carried through that through school, through college. And honestly, it wasn't until I gave my life to Christ, and you read in the book where Christ says, you, I tried to leave the church back and forth, and Christ is like, I hold your tongue. You will use it for me or you won't use it at all. And it's like, okay. Um, and then the confidence of really being me was when I went through the CLP training um, locally and worked with the group, and the group was like, you stutter? And had not noticed it, and it was there of me sharing and talking about it that my confidence really came to be. So you graduate high school. Yes. You go to Pratt Institute in New York City, where your major was? Food and nutrition. OK. <laughs> but then a family member says to you, no, you know, sorry, I was nutrition and dietetics. Nu and nutrition? Okay. Yeah, mom said you go to college 
and you have to, she, she wanted me to be a registered dietitian because she knew that a young black woman in the field of being a registered dietitian would be a marketable field. And she said, and that's what you do. And back then when they paid the bills, that's what you did. Right. You didn't question, you went right. to college. You went to school. Went to school. But your cousin said to you, Pratt Institute is wasting your potential. Yes. You don't need to be here. Yes. I thought I was having a good time. I mean, I left Boston, and I'm in Brooklyn, and I get to go hang out. And I remember meeting some very close friends that were in sports. And I was like, oh, I want to go to a party. And they were like, what? I'm like, I want to go to a party. And I'm like, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? And they're looking at me, and I'm like, you know, Disco 45, and they're like, oh, a party. They're like, if we take you, don't talk. <laughs> you, know, you know, and take off all these gold chains, but you can't talk, all right? Just, just smile at people. So I had this deep Boston accent, and I got the opportunity, I was having fun. I would go to plays with my mother, and I'd go to Studio 54, the garage, and I was having a great time. <laughs> Sorry, dear. <laughs> um, but your, your cousin said, I was wasting my time. He says, you're partying too much. And he said, I need to take you to Howard University. And you were highly insulted. Yeah, because I knew everybody every, at Pratt. You know, I worked in the athletics department, and I was in the co-ed dorm. I was friends with the basketball players, the track team. I was active, you know? I'm sorry, dear. Uh, <laughs> she hasn't read the book. Okay. <laughs> You're in for a treat today, Jackie. So I was, you know, I'm, life is, for me, life is good. But he said, you're wasting your time here, and wanted me to go to Howard University. Spring break, we go to Howard University. And what convinced you that that was the place for you? What convinced me? Mm -hmm. When I, um, I arrived at Howard on campus, spring break, I had not seen so many positive black people, young black people that looked like me in my life in one place. I, I, I was, it was like a different world. And the men were fine. <laughs> and I was like, HBCU life, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> uh, there were all different hues, height, shapes. I was like, sign me up. <laughs> and at the time that I arrived, it was, noontime mm -hmm. and they were stepping on the yard. I had never seen frater fraternities and sororities step in person and I was mesmerized. I went from one group to the next and my cousin was in banking and he was an alpha and alpha phi alpha fraternity and then he started stepping and I'm looking at him like <laughs> What are you doing? You know how to do this? And he was stepping, and all of a sudden, another crowd come up, and the crowd would leave. They go to the Kappas, they would go to the AKAs, and then all of a sudden, uh, from nowhere comes the colors of red and white. Oh. <laughs> 
these women walked on the yard in red and white, and they were like 72 women stomping. Ooh. So I said, what is this? Had never seen it before. I was mesmerized. Sign me up. But it wasn't the women that said sign me up because the women were just, it was, I was intimidated because they just were just beautiful. I had never seen so many beautiful black people of different shades of color before, and they were college students, but it was the men. No doubt, it was the men. Really, Michelle? I know, I know, <laughs> told you. You answered the question. <laughs> And you can see how much they are alike. <laughs> but before you got to Howard, you had your first interruption. Yes. Um, don't ever do this. I lied to my mother, and <laughs> she packed up my car, and I was supposed to drive to Howard. Classes started in August, but instead I took a detour. And I was spending the night in Brooklyn and going to party one last time with my friends before I went to school the next day. And going to pick up a friend, I was not trying to spoil everything, but I had a major car accident and did not make it. And I was home an entire semester. But you did go to Howard. I did, the next semester. The next semester, you went to Howard. Yes. There's a story that you want to give a little bit of detail to about your Howard experience. You don't want to go too, too much deep into it. But the public speaking class. So my cousin told me that because I missed entire semester of, of college credits, and financial aid, you've got to take these credits. So I took incomplete classes. So I had 18 credits that I had to make up, and I had a year to make up the 18 credits. And back then, if you're on financial aid, you've got to carry 18 credits to be, to be qualified. Mm -hmm. So I know, it's like, how am I going to do this? So I had to carry a heavy load. So what I did was, I'm um, standing in the registration line and not trying to give the story away, I wanted to find classes that were easy classes. And I overheard someone say, oh, this is an easy A, this is an easy A. And it was a communication class. So I signed up for the communication class. The stutterer signs up for the <laughs> communication class. And I take the class, and everybody in the class is a senior, and they're all Greeks because it was an easy A. And everybody in the class wore their fraternity and sorority sweaters, and I felt this small in the class because I didn't know anyone. And the professor gave an outline. We had to give short presentations. But the last presentation of the class was about 10, 15 minutes. And I signed up to take the last class, the last presentation, hoping that nobody would be there because they would have gone before me. Right. And I had to find a creative way of finding a way to deliver my presentation. And I did. And let's just say, without being a spoiler, I found Sigmund Freud. 
and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's a very interesting story in the book. During your junior year, your mother becomes ill. She doesn't share it with you. And eventually she does pass. Yes. You felt she wasn't upfront with you because she didn't want you to leave school. But looking back, how did that, and it's, it's sort of an obvious question, but how did it affect you? A lot. My mother, I mean, I'm her only daughter, and I'm in school, and she wants me to finish college. And so she hid it from me. So she didn't tell me. And a, a, a relative told me that she had cancer. And I found out less than a year before she passed. And it was devastating. My mom is gone. And the hardest part for that was to finish school. And I was taking organic chemistry. <laughs> and I just didn't get it. I just like, in my, I sat in the class and I said, did I, I'm looking at the syllabus and I'm saying, did I miss, is this 101, 102? Did I miss a whole semester? You know, do I have the wrong book? You know, what? I just didn't get it. And I went to the advisor as, as you heard in the reading, and said, listen, I, I'm dealing with my mom. She passed away, and I haven't been able to study well. And he was like, oh, he's just looking at me. And I was like, I was wondering if I you know, should take this class or change my major. And he's like, Odell, I support you changing your major. He said, because at this point, you owe me points. And I was like, I owe you points. <laughs> But that's how bad I was in organic chemistry. So he encouraged me to change my major. And what it has done for me moving forward is with my family is we don't lie about our health. You know, I don't care what it is. Whatever I have to go through, what we're doing, don't lie about your health, be honest. And that's something in the black culture we have hid from our families. We don't talk about our health issues. So we don't know I don't know what I've inherited. I don't know what my parents went through, what they carried, and I didn't want my children to do that. So we are honest about our health. We'll get back to that. You graduate Howard. Yes. Accept a slot in the Willard Strait Dining Program at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Yes. Three significant things happen. You give Cornell its first taste of soul food. Yes. You become a member of a sorority. Yes. And you meet your future husband, Michael Cooper. <laughs> yes. So, first of all, how did you bring soul food to Cornell? Cornell University was very big on Cornell dining, um, five-star dining. They did cross-country gourmet dinners. They would find the five-star restaurants all over the world, bring their chefs in, and every restaurant, every dining hall would duplicate their hall to look like this restaurant. And they would teach you how to talk to chefs, how to make the menu. And you would dress up. And you would, everyone would go through training and all this great and wonderful stuff. So they knew five-star dining. And my first experience was wonderful. And what I said to my director, I said, I want to do a black history dinner. He said, it's never been done. 
I said, I want to offer black history dinner. He says, we, we don't do it. I said, can we do it? He said, sure. He says, but you got to find the, the, the staff to do it. So the Cornell dining staff at Willett Strait, we, they supported me. My director supported me. Um, my future husband was there. He was black and from New York. We had to find chefs who knew how to cook soul food. We had to teach them how to cook soul food. No, not cheese sauce, grape the cheese. <laughs> you know, collard greens, candy yams, macaroni and cheese, um, dirty rice, the whole nine yards. It was a handful of people that we needed to do to teach. And it was still, it was coming along slowly. Cornell had a, has a um, black campus on the north side of campus where all the black students, where the, not all the black students live, the, I, I won't call them radical, but um, <laughs> just say yes, okay. <laughs> the radical students lived. And it was the Ujima dormitory. And I went to the Ujima dormitory, I met the director, and I said, Joe, I said, can you help me spread the word? I said, I need every student to show up in this dorm to show up and support this event. And he helped me, we got the word out, and we had the event on a Friday night. Friday night, students sit and have meal plans, correct? On Friday nights, and in college, they, they ate off campus. We broke the record. We broke the record. And yes, they supported me in starting Cornell's first Black History Dinner, and they still do it today. One of the, um, I have to add, one of the students, um, one of the students had to create a cheat sheet for everyone who came on staff and said, how to survive Black History Month with Odell? <laughs> it's like, you better know this and you better know that before you hit the floor because you're in trouble if you don't. And to this day, they still do it. And you have a plaque? Yes. So I have my plaque from Ujiba Dormitory. <laughs> <laughs> what made you decide that going Greek was a good idea? Listen, I've always, my, my mother, grandmother wore red. So red was the color. So I didn't have a, a, a choice about the color, red, let's be clear. <laughs> All right, red was the color. Um, that's why I get upset with my granddaughter who is pink. But I know, Cassie, I see it. So, so red was the color. And at Howard University, they were only, and it looks different on every campus, but at Howard University's campus, the women of Delta Sigma Theta sorority were dark skinned and all different hues. They were friendly. And not that the other sororities weren't, but they were the most open and friendly. They were active on campus. And I saw myself in them and the work that they did in the community. So when I went to Cornell, I thought my choices had, you know, I missed that opportunity. And then after I did the Black History Dinner, I was well known on campus. And I was well known in the community. And this, um, the, the, the Ithaca alumni chapter, um, found me and started talking to me, and they said we invited me to the rush, and it was on and popping, and <laughs> I joined. <laughs> I was accepted. You're accepted. I was accepted. 
How'd you meet Michael Cooper? We worked together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, I know, we worked together. And we worked together. You <laughs> Your story, not mine. I know, my story. Your story, not mine. So, I was spending a lot of my money flying back and forth from Ithaca to D.C. And got very expensive. And Michael and I worked together. And it, it just happened. We fell in love. We fell in love. So you get married. Yes. Decide New Haven's the place for you because you want to be surrounded by family. Yes. And two years after the move, your first child. Hello. Jacqueline Diane Cooper. Wait, wait. Really? Yes. The whole government? The whole government. We want people to know who you are. Jackie is fine. Jackie's named after her aunt. And there was a lady who worked with me at Yale New Haven Hospital in Food and Nutrition. And her name was Diane. She gave me a hard time when I started working. She was so mean to me. She said, listen, I can take Marriott. You know these, not you, honey. I can take Marriott. I can take these white supervisors telling us what to do. I don't like black people telling me what to do. You're acting like them. So she treated me very mean. And then when I got pregnant, she switched. She said, what do you mean? She was the nicest thing. She made sure I was okay. She took care of me. She bought me extra food. Um, and I named her after her. And two years later, Jonathan Michael Cooper. The bridge was born. Now, Jackie, yes. I understand that Jonathan was born specifically for you. You yeah. want to explain why he was born specifically for you? I was thought I was annoying. <laughs> and they needed somebody to um, distract me so I have somebody to play with. And so that's what. <laughs> that's why he came along. Jackie was not meant to be the only child. Um, she was very needy, um, didn't like to play by herself, would wake up early morning and, and show up, and it's like, oh, goodness. And it's like, okay, you need company. So, yes, Jonathan was born. Well, I didn't care if it was a boy or a girl. The next <laughs> child was purposely born for her. Yes. And you became the quintessential big sister. Flash mom, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. It is my understanding that you not only told Jonathan that he was not going to heaven, and that if he did not get saved, he would be not in heaven with you, your mother, and father. Yep, he was on straight to knocking on the devil's door. Absolutely. <laughs> he was on straight to hell. Absolutely. And he raised straight forward towards the altar that Sunday morning, dropped his Game Boy off in the pew, and went straight up there before the pastor finished whatever he needed to say to welcome people down. Yeah. He was standing right in front of the pastor, ready to give his life, absolutely. And you stood with him, and you got baptized with him? Yes, yes, we did get baptized together, yes. Quintessential big sister. I did all my duties. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so you all were the typical black middle class family. But it seems, Odell, during your childhood, church wasn't something that was involved heavily in your life. No, uh, no. my grandmother took me to church, went to Grand Amy Church in Boston. But, you know, you fall off, go to college, fall off, wasn't thinking about church and college. And Jackie, I want to go to church. I want to go to Bible study. I still don't. I want to go to. I I'm not taking responsibility. For yes, because she still went with it. <laughs> Jackie, take me to church. Take me to church. So because of Jackie, and I didn't know at the time that if I didn't know at the time there was Bible study in Saturday church school. Okay. I just thought it was just Sunday. Mm -hmm. And for the whole week, I decided not to take her because I was doing laundry. She made my life miserable. <laughs> I want to go to church. I want to go to church. So I, the next Sunday, we went to church. We went to Living Word Ministries when it was in West Haven. And we started going to church. And she wanted to go to Bible studies, Sunday school. She wanted to sing in a choir. She wanted to do everything. So that's what mothers do. Maya. Yes, I took her to church. But then there was a change. Yes. Um, my marriage, having some troubles in my marriage, and the church didn't fit well with my husband, so he said we need to go to a black church so um, where he can have his roots in baptism and be a Baptist, Baptist church, as he said. But we found Barrett Amy Zion Church in New Haven. And um, prior to that, my coworker used to tell me at work, you need to come to my church. You know, you're using your gifts for other people. You need to start using your gifts for the Lord. And I'm like, okay. And she walked by my office and tell me that all the time. And we got a young pastor at the church, and he's good. You need to come to the church. So I figured it wasn't a Baptist church, but it was Amy Zion, and that's where we went. And we went as a family, and we joined. And that's where we met Jonathan Barryman at the church and my godmother. Um, so yes. So, and, you. and Marcel. Yes, I met him. And that's where Marcel is, where we met Marcel. So you end up at Hartford Seminary. Yes. And that wasn't even supposed to be something long and endearing. You just wanted to have an understanding <coughs> because you were teaching Sunday school. So yes. you figured, I'm going to be the best Sunday school teacher they have ever seen. <laughs> So I'm going to take a couple of courses. I'm teaching Sunday school. Uh, Pastor McCorn had me started teaching um, little, little by little. So I'm teaching Sunday school. And I asked him one day, what was theology? And he says, you need to go to seminary school. <laughs> I don't know how one ended up being the other. So I went to the Black Ministries program at Harvard Seminary. And I said, I just wanted to take Old and New Testament classes. I want to be the best Sunday school teacher that I could be, know all that I could know, um, and then just go back home. <coughs> and then while I was in class in Old Testament, and our professor, Dr. Judy Fentress Williams, is teaching us Old Testament, I didn't know a lot. And I'm flipping the pages, and I'm looking for the love story of Moses. And I'm flipping back and forth, thinking I nodded on it. I'm looking for it. And I couldn't find it. 
and I'm reading Moses was a stutterer. What? You know, what? It, this is not Charleston Heston. So, and I'm flipping back and forth, and I'm, I just, I could not believe it. And I, a friend of mine that I end up meeting there, Reverend Lamb, he said, you, why don't you just stay and stay with me and do the whole year? And my niece had to watch the children for a whole year on, a fr on Saturday morning so that I can go to school. And she was 16 at the time. And I'm like, what 16-year-old does that? But that's what she did for me, and that's what I did. And you went on to get your master's in seminary. Yes, I finished and got went. She, went mm, she convinced me just to go, and I thought I was done. But I'm hanging out with Reverend Brenda Lammy, and she says, go to the orientation class with me. And I'm in Hartford hanging out on a day. So she said, just go, just sit with me. Next thing I know, I'm signing my name on the enrollment form, and I have to find a way to tell my husband that uh, I am going to seminary school now in Hartford, as well as being a mother and, and so forth. You can't blame that on me. No, dear. You win. Completely. <laughs> you end up in Hartford Seminary and you end up under the tutelage of Bishop Benjamin Watts. Oh, yeah. So at Hartford Seminary, you're, you have a lot of theological classes that you have to take. And I didn't know what I was asking for, but I had took Islam studies. I had taken, um, learned about Calvinism. Um, all different voices of theology. And I went to my advisor and I said, I want to know what black people think about God. And he just looked at me. He was like, what? I said, isn't it, you know, we've got Islamic studies, we got, you know, white voices for theology. What do black people think about theology? He says, it's called black liberation theology, Odell. I said, well, I want that. <laughs> I said, how do we get that class here? He said, well, it's not offered. I said, I want that class. I want to take that class. And he said, get me 10 students, and I'll find someone to teach the class. I said, I'll get you. He asked for six. We did six in order to have a class. I got 10 in case four decided to join. <laughs> and we got 10 students. We're sitting in class. And I hope Bishop Watts is not watching. But if he is, he says, I always embellish his story. And we're sitting there in the class, and in walks a man bigger than life I had never seen before. Everyone else knew him. He had on some big cowboy boots, and he sat down at the front of the table, and he started talking, teaching us black liberation theology. But you had a little challenge with him. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Sorry, Dr. Watts. Um, <laughs> and you know him. So Bishop Watts, you, you pastors, teachers, that he thought we were in the doctorate's program. And he sat at the table and he just started talking to us and lecturing. And I didn't get it. I'm like, I want something different. So the class said, Odell, seeing you coordinate this class, <laughs> tell him he has to teach differently. <laughs> Telling that man that? No, 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 tell him he's got to talk to us differently because it's too much work and he's just lecturing to us. And he never engages us in conversation. He just lectures. So I got another student. We went downstairs, Reverend Garland Higgins, 
And we went downstairs and we courted him downstairs and we said, Bishop Watts. And I just thought he grew like 17 feet when I looked up at him. And I said, uh, the class would like for you to lecture us differently. I said, can, you knew these people. You know, you know this. So can you talk to us from your heart and not just from what's in the book? He never opened his mouth and he just looked down at us and I felt the room trembling and I just backed up. And we ran back upstairs and sat down and they were like, what did he say, what did he say? I said, he didn't say anything. And Bishop Watts came back into the room and he looked at us and he closed the book and started teaching the rest of the class from his heart and from his knowledge, not what just was in the book. He gave us a little bit more. And when I graduated from, the, from, from, the, from my master's degree, he was standing at the end of the stage. And I said, I'm not talking to that man because I know he don't like me. Um, but it was then that he shook my hand and I spoke to him and he says, anyone that can challenge me the way that you did because they wanted more, he says, can work with me. And he hired me to be the teacher's assistant in the Black Ministries program. It's a point for all these little stories. So you married gents. Yes. But you were doing entrepreneur work, IT? Yes. Um, yeah, what, what finish your question? Was that it? No. Okay. I wanted to work with churches and to teach churches how to use technology. Um, it was very big. Yeah. Churches needed to use technology. And I was trying to teach them how to use Wi-Fi and, and, and have internet. Churches didn't have networks and, right. and, and websites. It wasn't very big back then. And that's what I wanted to do. And Reverend Streets allowed me to come to his church and to help his church. And there were others that we were doing this. And I, it, it was a challenge because churches didn't get it. They didn't understand that they needed a website, they needed technology, they needed internet. Um, and it was working with a church in Bloomfield and uh, Jackie's godfather that I was, that I know, that I knew from Pratt introduced me to someone here. And what ended up happening is that I was offered the opportunity to teach in a housing project in Springfield. They had a computer lab. And we end up running the computer lab in the housing authority in this housing project in Springfield. And we taught the community how to use technology. We trained them on Word, Microsoft. We did tutoring out the school with their kids so that their children could learn how to use technology. And I'm riding back and forth between New Haven to Springfield. So I had a business partner, and that's what we were doing. And it gets you another job which makes you financially stable. Yes, because I was, I was tired. Um, I ended up working, I was working for a computer company in Windsor and contracting. I was working all over the state in technology and Alexion Pharmaceuticals, I was teaching there one day and the staff said, y'all need to hire her. You need, you need to hire her, you need to hire her. I was teaching project. And they offered me the job to come on. The director hired me, and I started working for Alexion Pharmaceuticals when they were in Cheshire in their IT. <coughs> oh, shit. 
So the kids are growing up. Jackie is attending various advancement programs during the summers. John's going to basketball camp or enrichment programs. Your house is full of young people, especially friends of John, Marcel, Damar, and Kenny, or his cousins. So Marcel, I'm gonna ask you this question, because when I, Odell and I talked about it, she's still mad. So I'm gonna say to you, Which who is, and Jackie, you can jump in here. You can jump in here anytime you want. Who is the law? Oh, man. <laughs> um, the law... You ain't got nothing to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The law is a group of friends that um, felt like we were above the law, so we started to make our own laws. Not in a malicious way, but to more create our own path. Mm. That's what it was. And we wanted to just become like a brotherhood and just have each other back to school. So that's what it really was. And, and I'm laughing. I'm laughing because both of you are like, I don't want anything to do with that. Because Odell could not take it. She disdained the rap music that you all were doing. Yeah. Because you all were creating rap and doing videos, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Jackie had convinced her mother to buy a video camera so that Jonathan can start to make videos. And... It didn't go well for a hot second. No, it didn't. Look, I did not tell him to make the video. I, I'm not responsible for that. <laughs> still, still, nobody wants to claim anything. Nope, nope, nope. I didn't. I just knew that they messed up when we came home because me and my mother went out to dinner. Uh -huh. And we came home and they were all in the basement. <laughs> and they were all sitting around, but the vacuum cleaner was out. It was like... Y'all teenage boys, y'all don't clean up <laughs> nothing. Y'all don't, yeah, they still have the bandanas on their face and everything. It was like, all right, all y'all sitting there, y'all all got bandanas on, the vacuum cleaner is out. And I was like, y'all did something stupid. I don't know what it is, but all of y'all did something stupid. And she knew it too, but we just didn't know what it was. Went to school a couple of days later, Jackie, you need to come out of class because your brother did. I'm like, what did he do now? because I was always saving him in school. Mm -hmm. The teachers would always pull me out of class to save him before they got to her. So this one was viral and it was on YouTube. Yeah, yeah it made it to YouTube wow. and MySpace. That's what made it so worse. And I was like, yeah, I can't help you out. With, like, why are you stabbing a teddy bear on camera, bro? He was had he had a heartbreak. He had a heartbreak. <laughs> we was trying to be there supportive. Uh, and you know, he was like, yo, she got me this teddy bear and we just like, yo, let's stab you, let's stab you. <laughs> she broke your heart, we wanna break the teddy bear, you know? It's cool. And then she videotaped. <laughs> yeah, not our best. Not our best choice. Yeah. So it ended up a little messy. Yeah. It, it teachers, and then like teachers call and say, Odell, we gotta talk to you. This is what Jonathan did. And I'm like, well, and how do you know Jonathan did it? They tell me how they do. <laughs> how do you know Jonathan did it if they had red bandanas on? So I'm trying to be a mom, trying to protect my child. Well, dummies. <laughs> they're like, well, Odell, you're the only one that we let come in. The only sorority we let come in to do. Um, photo reg. Photo reg. 
So when they did the video, they videotaped and you could see your sorority symbols all in the background. And they on the wall are pictures of Jack and John when they were younger. So not only are you going to call something that's stupid, you're going to be, a, and I think I was a, more upset that they were stupid criminals, you know, that now I mean, post it with every, you know, sororities up there, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to get in trouble, <laughs> you know, what's my chaplain president going to do? Um, but no, DeMar didn't cover his face at all. I was like, the beginning of the video, a couple of people DeMar didn't cover his face. people forgot to cover their faces as well. Yeah, oh we tried to edit that part out, but, you know. It, it didn't Work. So, was D-Law banned from your house after that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? you got to have a place for young people to come. And my house was it. And I wanted that to be it. So, good, bad, or indifferent. Rap music, I hated it. But it was the house. And I'd rather them be home than in the streets. So, with the stupid music, and Marcel lived there. Yeah. Basically, home every he weekend. wasn't home, he was there. Yeah. And they knew that if something broke, they would just say, Marcel did it. <laughs> because I wouldn't get mad at Marcel. Never. Still to this day, never. I don't know why. I love this. I love this because you all do so. When you all read the book, you'll get more of a feel for this while I'm sitting here giggling. But, never. Um, so, high school graduations come. Jackie, Neither Jackie hand. ends up going to FAMU, and John ends up going to Eastern Connecticut. But <laughs> after a year or two, everybody's back at your house. So, what message did that give you? I was like my mother, go to college. You, you want your children to go to college, get an education so they could, um, you know, get a, go to college, get a job, get married, get off the house. This is life. This was the pattern that I was taught, so that's what I taught my children. I wanted Jackie to have the HBCU experience because I had it. Um, she did not like it as much as I did, and I would never send John there. And John went to college and was never really big in academics. And I didn't think about other options for them. And college is not always an option for our children, but I forced college on my children until the bills came. And I'm looking at C's, and I'm like, I'm not paying for mediocre grades. So the irony in this is that they followed their parents' footsteps. Both of them went into culinary. Yes. Uh, Jonathan, I wanted to find a way to, he, Jonathan looked like every other young black boy in New Haven. And too many shootings would happen. He just didn't, I didn't, didn't feel safe. So I wanted something different for him. Uh, and not that I didn't want him for Jackie, but Jackie I felt safe, but for the young men, I got you know, he just looked the same. So he went to New York, and he went to New York, and he was in music school. I said in music school in New York. He's living with his cousin, and he finds culinary. He falls in love with, oh, she's Swedish girl. Yeah. Some Swedish girl, I don't even know how that happened, but she was beautiful. 
And I'm looking at him like, dude, really? Um, and she was a chef. And he was in culinary. And Jackie ends up, I'm now the director at Contact. And Jackie decides that she wants to go to culinary school. And I could not believe that's what she wanted to do. But she did. So she's in culinary school. I'm the director. We have a friends and family day. And Jonathan came home for that special event. And I gave all this background to have people understand that your family was no different than any other middle class family in New Haven. That you all were going about your lives when April 23rd happened. That Jonathan was not the kid that ran the streets, that Jackie was not somebody that hung out all night, that you had a viable home with parents. Yes. That makes a change for your family, that particular date. Yes, that was the <clears throat> April 23rd. That was the first, in, that was the interruption. That was the interruption. And I call it interruption so I can say it better. And 12 hours later, we take a beautiful picture in contact with three of us, very happy family. And 12 hours later, um, we're not so happy. I'm, you saw the production, so you know what happens. And you know why we're here, you know who's missing, but it was different. Marcel, what kind of an effect did that have on you as a young black man, especially someone who was as close as you were to John? Um, it was unreal. It was definitely unreal. Um, especially, I think the biggest part of it that hit the most was I was talking to him the night. And I was like, I'll come get you. Like, we were supposed to hang out and stuff like that. And he was like, oh, I'm about to go to this place. So I was like, all right, cool. I'll, I'm about to go to work. I'll come scoop you after and stuff. So I got a call from Ms. Odell, 3 o'clock in the morning. I missed it. I was asleep. Um, and then, like, to wake up the next day thinking, like, oh, that's weird, and call back and get the news and stuff like that, it was unreal. Like, it was completely unreal. I still didn't believe it. Um, I was torn between <coughs> trying to deal with my own emotions and then realizing I gotta be strong. Um, I felt like I had to be strong for Jackie and Fidel. Um, my other friends that were affected by it and stuff like that. One of my friends, Damar, is not here. Um, I had to go pick him up because he got the call too. And he was in such a disbelief. He just like, nah, didn't happen, went back to sleep. I ignored it and I was like no this is real like I'm coming like I'm on my way to come get you right now you need to get in my car we gotta go and um, that probably that conversation on the way back was probably like one of the hardest ones because he broke down yeah and I was like fuck yeah excuse my language but yeah that was hard so Odell when you experience this because you had comforted families before in your role as, as Reverend. Yeah. You, in seminary school, you take pastoral counseling and minister, you support families in grief. You know what to say, you know what to do. I knew what to say. 
I knew the scriptures to roll off my tongue. I knew, you know, to pray, to what to say of healing. But none of it made sense to me at that point. The people were coming to me with those scriptures and those comfort, words of comfort, and I dismissed them. Don't talk to me because that's, it didn't fit. I knew it, so it felt fake. It's like, I'm telling you that. You know, and you know, I, all the cliches that we hear, you know, God needed another angel. No. Um, he's in a better place. No, he wasn't sick. He's not in a better place. Um, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. You know, just pray more. Or all the different things that scriptures and that I just did not work for me. I didn't understand this pain. I had dealt with grief, I, you know, losing my parents and my grandmother. I knew what grief felt like, but this was different. This was heavier. And I had never felt like this before in my life. I couldn't stop the tears. It was dark. It just was, I didn't know there was a weight to grief. And this feeling was very different, and I didn't understand it. And people were trying to give me comfort and I didn't want to hear it. In the production, and I have, I have a shirt that says, ask me another question. Yes. And it comes from people being well-meaning, yes. but not really knowing what to say. Yes, and it was at that point, at some point, I decided that I needed to be true to how I was feeling. I couldn't say, I couldn't wear the mask anymore to make people feel good, that say, I'm okay, I'll be all right. I wasn't okay, I wasn't all right. But they wanted to hear that, and I could not say that any longer. So when they were calling to give me words of comfort, mm -hmm. I, how, how are you feeling today? Ask me another question. Because what I have for you, you don't want to hear. And they were confused, and when I say I hung up on people, click, I hung up on people. And Jonathan is saying, that's got to go in the story. That's got to go in the story. We've got to put that in play because that's, that's what I did. Jackie, did your yeah. relationship with God change? What do you mean? Were you angry with God? Because I know at, your mom was. At first I was angry, but at the same time, it took a while to understand that <coughs> that God, um, he controls everything in life. You may not be able to understand why he does he, what he does, why he does it, or how he does it, or when he does it. You have to accept it. So it took a while to accept the action that happened. But angry at first, definitely angry. I was still confused on why it was just my brother at the time, but over a while, I accepted why he did what he did. I still don't understand why he did it, but I accept the action. And so, Odell, when you talk about not hiding a health issue, you all were really living in an environment of trauma and stress, and you weren't talking to one another, really. You weren't communicating. You all were like shits in the night, mm -hmm. but you weren't talking at all. Mm -hmm. Live together, and people tend to see the 
picture snapshot of a family and you think they're okay. It's that snapshot. They're smiling. She's at work. She's going back to church. Or they're out and about. The grass is cut. Trash is cans around. So snapshot. Family must be okay. But on the inside, we were traumatized and didn't know it. I didn't know that I had trauma. I was traumatized. I didn't know that I, what was going on in my body, I did not know the impact of stress and traumatic grief was having on my body. It wasn't until later that I learned that I had post-traumatic stress disorder and the explosions of depression and alcoholism and depression and anxiety was taking over my body. I looked like me, sometimes talked like me, but I was not me on the inside. And Jackie and I were living in the same house, and we didn't, I didn't see her. I saw her, but I didn't see her. And I outlined a lot of it in the books. I don't want to give that away, but I didn't see her. November 15 comes along, a few years later. You had fainting spells. You had been stumbling, stumbling, and Headaches, and you think, oh, this is bad migraine. Yeah. So you're taking migraine meds. Yeah. I don't know if you know, but you know, I got the doctor's degree, so you know. <laughs> we think we're told that we're strong black women, and if you get a headache, it's just a headache. You know, you're stumbling. Oh, maybe I'm a little tired. It's something. So I'm self-diagnosing myself, and it's the Worst headache I've had, in, I've never experienced that in my life. It came on quickly, suddenly, from zero to 100 in a second. Nausea, dizzy, vomiting, and I'm thinking it's a migraine. And I go back in the house, I rest, call Jackie, and she calls my job, says that you know she's not coming in. And she's like, Mom, go to the doctor. I'm like, no, I'm just gonna go to bed. And I go upstairs, I lie down, I wake up at 4 in the morning, I'm like, well, if I wake up later on, no, so when I wake up, I'll call the doctor. And I shudder when I think about going to sleep and waking back up, knowing that I then knew that I had a brain aneurysm. Blood vessel had popped in my head and I was bleeding in my head. And it was 24 hours later before I went to my doctor. When I went to my doctor, Dr. Edward Rappel, um, I was supposed to let Jackie take me, but I you didn't go down. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and Jackie even told me, as they have you in the ambulance, you are texting people, saying, I'm going to Yellow Haven. <laughs> I need to have exams done. What's going on with you? My brain is bleeding. Well, why are you texting me on the phone if your brain is bleeding? I wanted people to know where I was, um, but it was, it's, it's been a journey. It has been a journey. What was the epiphany after your surgery? Listen, a friend of mine, and she's here, and the book is called Checkbox. And Checkbox had, her name is Anne. Anne has realized that Something was wrong with me. And she came to the office. I was working at Concat. She came to the office. She says, you need to go see a therapist. When I was in the CLP program, there was a therapist who was in the group with us, uh, the doctor, her daughter, Ruben. 
and she was excellent at what she did in trauma. She says, you need to call a therapist. Matter of fact, I called her daughter, I told her about your situation, and she wants you to call her. She saw behaviors in me that I did not see and that I did not know what was going on. And she suggested that I, no, she didn't suggest, she told me to call and make an appointment and I went to counseling. And even in counseling, I still had not given up the pain because I felt if I gave up the pain that I'd be giving up my son. And I needed to keep him close. And I went, you know, I had raking training, raking sessions of helping and trying to listen. Jackie kept saying, rest, rest, rest. Um, and people thought I was greedy, but it wasn't grief. It was a lot more than that. And I went to counseling and had the aneurysm. And I'm still carrying it. And I'm lying in the hospital, and I knew that if someone whispered in my ear and said, let go, I would have died. Um, it's like that movie. What was that Down movie? to Earth. Down to Earth, where Chris Rock is getting ready to get hit by the bus, and the angel is standing there waiting for him so he can grab his soul. I could feel an angel just hovering <coughs> over me. And it's like, I can't die on my son's birth date. I would ruin my, the rest of my daughter's life, generational trauma. I will ruin her life. And I said, I can't die today. And I didn't want to die. I wanted to live. But I couldn't carry the weight of my son's death and fight for my life. So the bargain that I made was, if you came for something, take the pain and let me fight for my life. And that was the bargain. And it worked, because I'm here. And I give my pain to God to carry, because it's too heavy for me to carry. So reinventing yourself. <sighs> what does that look like? Especially because you are Odell. And Odell is used to telling people what to do, how to do it. We're very organized. Things are compartmentalized. And now, with this brain aneurysm, all of that is out the window. Yes. I'm a little stubborn. A little? A little, a little stubborn. A little. Um, and I want to go back to work. And I've tried to convince a lot of my friends to help me to update my resume. And they're like, yeah, OK. Um, I want to work for Macy's. I want to work for Kohl's. I want to go back to work. And they were like, yeah, OK. Um, and I actually got a job at Talbot. Talbots, because I wanted to go back to work. Then I said, oh, I can do Uber Eats. You know, <laughs> I can be, I know, I could be a director. And, and I was up, wanting to apply for the job. And, but the job was in New York to help restaurants <laughs> sign up to join Uber Eats. And they were like, you think you're going to get on a train and go back and forth to New Harlem, New York, and do that? Yes, 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 I want to work. But I couldn't work. And my doctor finally told me, um, he had to sit me down and say, listen, get a brain and you need to reinvent yourself. You have to find something else that you love to do because the life that you had is gone and you need to do something else. And I remember having, and I don't know if he remembers this, I was having a conversation with Howard K. Hill and I was talking about brain cells. And he says, you can restore brain cells. 
And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, you've got to exercise them. You've got to do things to help to restore mind cells. You can do that. So I figured if I thought, worked, moved my brain, did something with my brain, that I could restore brain cells. And I forgot your question. And so how did you end up reinventing yourself? Jonathan Berryman. Jonathan Berryman said I needed to find a way to tell my story in the arts. He says, you can do it. And I said, I can't. He says, you know people. And he said, write a book. As we're sitting at the table and we're telling the story, he says, put that in the book, put that in the book. And I'm like, I can't write, Jonathan. I can't write. I'm going to Southern to learn how to write again in the communication disorders department. I can't even send the text. I can't do this. And he says, you can. You can. And I had a lot of help. People helped me. And I got a phone call from, oh, someone watched the production and sent me an email named Stephen Southwick and said that was a great production and he said he enjoyed it and gave me his phone number and said, call me if you need to talk. How can I help you further this project along what you're doing? And I didn't know who he was. And I was talking to Alice Forrester and I said, Stephen Southwick sent me this very nice email and I was just talking to her. She said, do you know who he is? No. She's like, well, go now. And I didn't do it right away. And then I was talking to the person that was the support group for survivors of homicide. And I was telling her my story. And she says, I have a neighbor who has written a book on PTSD. I can introduce you to him. His name is Stephen Southwick. I was like, what's his name again? So I decided to listen. Figured God must be telling me to do something. And I Googled him. And Stephen, Dr. Stephen Southwick is the best doctor in the country for PTSD. And he has been counseling me and grooming me for two years. He says, I saw your production. He says, but what you missed was resilience. He says, you're resilient and you didn't do a good job talking about it. He says, when you write your book, make your book about resilience. And here is a book, and the book is about resiliency. So Jackie, let me ask you, how have you and your mom been communicating? And how are you handling all of this? Has your communication gotten better? That's a lot of questions. <laughs> um, at first, communication was like a complete zero. Oh, sorry. Communication was at complete zero for us. She didn't realize that we weren't communicating until me and Marcel went upstairs in her room to pull her out of bed. And then Maya started acting out a little bit because Maya is around Did everybody. Did you your daughter? Oh, yes. You didn't know Maya's my daughter. Um, <coughs> Maya started acting out a little bit because she was in the hospital. And the other grandmother was in the hospital also, so Maya started acting out. So when she noticed that Maya was acting out, she was like, okay, part of me needs to come back because she wanted to see what was going on a little bit. So Maya helped tremendously. 
more than we know. And she serves as the bridge between She is John reincarnated in a female body more. She is cracks a joke, hilarious, dancing. That is John reincarnated. So Maya is her, our own therapy and she doesn't even know it yet. She actually stood up in the kitchen chair one day and we were eating. Jackie and I were arguing about forks or something. something and she stood up, she was about five, and she says, you two need to stop arguing. She said, it makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. You need to find a better way to communicate because you love each other. She said, now figure it out and talk to each other better. And we looked at her and went, oh. And she was sitting in John's chair, in the chair that John sat in, and we knew that was John's voice. And from that point on, if we need to have that conversation, our voices are lower, and we listen better. And she's definitely a lot better than it was before. Yeah. We don't yell at it. Well, I don't yell at her <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I don't yell at her anymore, but it's definitely a lot better. You job in keeping her in check, because she went to I'm Steve raising Wonder. my mother. She's she a trip. She went to Dallas Cowboys. Because she don't listen. <laughs> she don't listen. The doctor told her to sit at home. But what she do, she wants to travel the world, go to the Cowboy Stadium, the MGM grand opening. Mm -hmm. She does everything in the world that she's not supposed to do. Then gets mad at me sometimes, so it's okay. She's still here. I'm doing something and Marcel, right. Marcel, you've been integral in, in keeping things going too. Yeah, you know, I come around every now and then, you know, see how everything's going, do my check-ins and stuff like that. Get told that I'm not coming around enough a lot of times, but you know, every time I'm in New Haven, I try to make it a point to come by. So Reverend Odell, yes. your line name was persistence, but it should be resilience. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing your interruption and your road to healing today. This has been, can you ask me my other last question? Which is what? What's next? Ah, you know what? In the sake of time, I jumped over some things, but you're right. You've got something else going on. And it's called Let's Talk, which is another piece of interruptions. It is a workbook for interruptions. And I taught the first class Friday at Harvard Seminary. And to take interruptions, I want to be able to help individuals who are in their, in their it doesn't matter if it's with gun violence or any place of pain and darkness. And we've all been there or dealing with some type of traumatic interruption to know that we have, we have what it takes to overcome. We just have to find it within ourselves and our friends and pull ourselves through. And John doesn't love thank you. And trying to keep myself busy and restoring my brain, I wrote the book, and Alice Forrester and Bernie Streets and Stephen Southwick and others have helped me to write the workbook. And it's called Let's Talk. And it's for everyday people and my interns sitting back there to help me to have questions so that we can talk about what we're not supposed to talk about. We need to talk about trauma. And it has gone where besides Hartford Seminary? 
Um, Stephen Southwick opened the door for me to talk to the VA hospital. Um, Dr. Joyner has an appointment with me next Wednesday to meet with the principal of Hill House High School. Reverend Streets opened the door for me to meet with Chief Higgins to talk with the police chief to train their staff. So I have invitations that I had no idea that this is where my life was going to be and where the story can go and where people need healing and conversations. And again, thank you for sharing your story of interruption and your road of healing and your road to healing today, as well as Marcel and Jackie. Thank you so much for being here. And this has been Reverend Cooper's story of interruptions. Thank you all for listening.